This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. For Indigenous persons in Australia, please be aware that we speak the names of deceased Indigenous persons. Listener discretion is advised. episode 82. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the, we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cisgender white what? dudes. No! <laughs> there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news and most of America is racist. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> and we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294 and we may feature it on a future episode. Also, Ooh. our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join the discussion by using the hashtag Fruit Loops Pod discussion or by joining our Facebook group. All of the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. That is true. And if you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. We also have some merch for sale on our website. But if you can't help monetarily, no problem. You can always give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And be sure to share our show with your friends. Yeah. Also, Father's Day's coming up. What a what better than to gift dad a fruit loops mug or a fruit loops t-shirt or fruit loops face mask right because we don't want dad to get the rona yeah that's right so who are we talking about today beth Today we're talking about Malcolm John Naden, an indigenous Australian man who killed two women in Dubbo, New South Wales, Australia. He then went on the run and was one of Australia's most wanted men for seven years. Yikes. But before we dive into it, 
How you doing? I'm okay. Um, my grandson just turned six. Yay! <laughs> Happy birthday, yeah. baby Beth. <laughs> uh, I wasn't able to be there for his birthday, which uh, makes me a little sad. But yeah. uh, I saw the photos, and he looked he looked really really happy. So I I was Aww. happy to see that. Yay! Yeah, I'll probably get to go visit in August. Well, I'm hoping anyway. If uh, you know the Rona dies down, mm, yes, we are all hoping that yeah. it dies down very yeah. soon. Um, well, I had an interesting weekend, so I was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Mm. I've been honest about my mental health struggles in the past and COVID on top of my old whitey being in the hospital two times for two surgeries in a course of two weeks. And then Ahmad Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and then the George Floyd thing. I just couldn't yeah, take it, it anymore. Too much, too much. Yeah, it was too much. So, um, my mom was like, how can I help? And like caped up and um, got me a hotel for the oh, weekend, nice. like by myself just to, to get away. And it was so lovely. That's awesome. It was so awesome. Give it up to your mom. Hip hop air, horn. air horns to my immigrant mother who I beg for her to be proud of me. <laughs> uh, but uh, she is very supportive. Um, but uh, anyway, so that was really, really nice. So I had a good we were going to record on Friday, but I was like, Beth, I'm out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so here we are on Monday evening and I feel recharged and just really, really good. So awesome. glad to be back. Yeah, I'm glad you were able to get that time to yourself. Yeah, me too. Y'all, we need it. Sometimes we just need a break. Yep. And um, I'm not ashamed to say what to do. So anyway, <laughs> so now we're going to dive into some listener letters. Hello, angels. Thank you. Hello. What's in the bag, Beth? Jen on Apple Podcasts said, the niche true crime podcast we need. In the sea Ooh. of true crime podcasts that are available, only a few cover only people of color. Beth and Wendy do a bang-up job bringing you cases doing just that. The telling of the crimes are well-rounded, easing the hard-to-hear, gruesome facts, with some humor all while respecting the victims. Putting together a podcast isn't the easiest thing to do, but these ladies make it seem like a cakewalk. Keep up the amazing work. <laughs> Man, that's a huge compliment. Yeah, it really is. And not only not only that, but Jen has her own podcast called Ooh. Our True Crime Podcast. And so she knows how much work we put into it. And uh, yeah, give Our True Crime Podcast a listen. They cover some more obscure cases. So oh, that sounds delicious. Yeah. Hip hop air horns to you, Jen. Yeah. Our play cousin down the dial. <laughs> <laughs> and one of our fruities who wishes to remain anonymous sent us uh, some money on the Cash App so that we could get a Santa Maria face mask for another fruity who oh. said that she wanted one but could not afford afford it so hip-hop air horns oh to god. all Look of our at... fruities we love you oh. guys you're the best oh my gosh look I at the know. girls come through so for sweet. each other yeah man this fruit loops community is just my heart is gonna explode on yeah, my chest <laughs> they're the best Ser um, yeah i mean i'm I, I don't know how to say it 
any, <laughs> they're just the best. <laughs> they are just the best, man. We love you guys. Like yeah. seriously, somebody, some, I'll put this in. We have like a, a, a running bank of like um, nice things people say about us to put in future episodes. But somebody was like this week, was really, really hard. It was another black woman who listens to the show. And she was like, you guys just got me through. Oh, wow. You helped me keep my sanity this week. And I was wow. like, no, girl, no, bitch. You helped me keep my sanity because yeah. doing the show was the only thing keeping me off of the rails, going off yeah. the rails. So Yeah, so thanks to all of you. Yeah. And yeah. and we got a new patron. Her her username is Find Katie. Uh, so thank you, Katie. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you all so much. Yeah. Um, and then Lauren on Facebook said, on episode 23, which is the Lester Street Murders episode, I'm dragging, but I have a nine-year-old and a one-year-old, uh, the biggest haters. Yeah, they do make they do make listening to podcasts hard. Girl, get you some wireless earbuds. Make sure they match your hair color. And then like your family could just be talking to you and you're like, uh-huh. And just uh-huh. nod your head. And just nod in my head. Smile Most of the time, nod, I'm not yeah. even listening. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Uh, and I remember this episode from the first 48. I remember how intense this episode was and how Carolina Mason, what a gem that woman is, handled seeing the poor baby in the hospital. You guys gave such great details on this case. Amazing work. Um, so thank you so yeah, much for you, listening, Lauren. Lauren, on Facebook. Can't do the show without you. And we really, really appreciate your kind words. Um, Light Lama on IG DM'd us. Uh, Hi, ladies. Your show was truly amazing the vibe is right and the content is fresh i love that word fresh (laughs) um i am happy to say i am not messaging just to rave about the show i wanted to share a find my home seated them needed some repair to a wall and old newspapers were crinkled up inside guess what investigative me read them right away and i found a true crime article about james foster a black serial killer in harlem in the 1960s who killed black women i think i i read part of the article in her like snapshot picture that he just hated all women oh my gosh and, um i have never heard of this guy so i but i couldn't find very much on the internet I when t- i looked it up right away i tried so, to uh google it i couldn't find any information on him yeah so um fruities if you have heard of this gentleman you might be able to help us put together an episode i think i might need to try looking him up on bing or one of those more obscure um search engines um because google isha didn't give me any info yeah but i couldn't find anything so yeah. yeah thank you we are so happy light llama about this find and we're, we're gonna we'll get keep to looking yeah yeah we'll, we'll see if we can find anything Yes, ma'am. So now we are going to take a quick break and then we're going to get into the story when we come back. Hey there, I'm Andre Matthews, host of Bruh is a Murder, a true crime podcast about people of color cases made by people of color. We also include great music from up-and-coming artists in our musical breaks. Check us out. 
so we're back. Uh, who are we talking about today, Beth? Who's our subject? Malcolm John Naden, an indigenous Australian man who killed two women who were members of his own family in Dubbo, New South Wales, Australia. After his crimes, he hid out in the bush for seven years before he was finally caught. Yeah, this story is pretty wild. Um, members of his own family? What the yep. fuck? Seven yep. years in the bush? What the? What the? What? <laughs> uh, so now we're going to get into some stats. Wendy's favorite part. <clears throat> so the stats are kind of nil on this one, but I'm going to give them to you anyway. Um, Malcolm Naden was born on November 5th, 1973. He was an Australian uh, first people's male, and his victims were Christy Scholes and his cousin Letitia Nolan, an Australian first people's female. But they were all sort of family members, so I think they all were first people's in some form or fashion. He also sexually assaulted a 12-year-old girl, and he shot a police officer, committed dozens of robberies, and he was on the lam uh, and was a wild peeping Tom. Uh, (laughs) So now we're going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. All right. The setting is New South Wales, Australia. New South Wales is Australia's oldest state, and it's where Sydney's located. It was named in 1770 by Captain James Cook, who, after falsely proclaiming that the land was uninhabited, claimed it for Britain. I just, I'll never understand why colonizers do this. (laughs) Because they just want to take. You know what? I like it here. I'm just calling my own. Um, And uh, this is kind of a tangent, but I've never been to Australia. And one of my favorite uh, Real Housewives um, franchises is the Real Housewives of Melbourne. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, there's, they're all characters, right? But there's there's one of them. And I think she is a first peoples. And she, she talks really funny. And I can't remember her name, but she was like, she always is like, I am freaking out. And that is my, (laughs) I am freaking. Out, <laughs> it's just so funny, uh, and I just I don't know. I just it's such it's it's like a wild ass place. I, my broke ass will never afford to go, but I can um, I can pretend when I watch Real Housewives yeah. and when I do research for the show. Uh, so anyway, uh, between two to three hundred autonomous language groups, each with several clans, lived in Australia before the European invasion in 1788. They were usually referred to as tribes but now more often as peoples or nations or language groups. Their heritage spans many different communities, each with their own unique mixture of cultures, customs, and languages. Torres Strait Islanders from the islands between northeastern Queensland and Papua New Guinea originate from Melanesia in the Western Pacific, and they have their own distinct culture. By the way, there is a really famous anti-racist teacher. Her name is Jane something. And in maybe the 60s, it might have been like right after Martin Luther King was assassinated. She um, went into class with like her second or third graders and taught them a lesson about how stupid discrimination is based on how people look. And she had she divided the kids up between the blue eyes and the brown eyes and said that the brown eyes are better and they're smarter. And then you blue eyes are the dumbasses and you don't get any oh, privileges. Wow. And the kids, the kids were like, what? And like she, her, um, at first she had a lot of backlash. She lost friends, but now she's like, she's like the, 
white lady voice for how to be anti-racist. And she, uh, one of her famous quotes is like, look, we probably all have the same African great, 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 great grandmothers from like thousands of years ago. And she's like, the only reason my skin is white is because my ancestors decided to leave Africa, leave near the equator and go someplace where, you know, their, their, their melanated skin was not necessary anymore. So their right. pigment changed. Right. Um, and uh, I just thought it was really cool to hear her say, I'm, I'm just a really light skinned black person. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just, I was like, wow, damn. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Um, where are we? Sorry, tangent. Um, by the way, <clears throat> again, welcome again. <laughs> welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. Now, when I was researching this case, I felt really weird um, hearing and seeing the word Aborigine because at some point in my life, I heard that it was offensive and I couldn't recall where or when. But uh, Aborigine or Abo. Um, are considered by some to be racial slurs. And we might slip up just because of the sources and we're going to try to use indigenous or Australian first peoples. Um, but uh, we here at Fruit Loops, um, I hope this goes without saying we are not racist. Um, we are actually anti-racist here at Fru- Fruit Loops. And these days there's a lot of racist shit going on in this world and it's just now coming to the forefront. Um, but it is not enough to just be not racist. Because if you say, oh, I'm not racist, you probably are. <laughs> um, you, ha- you have to be anti-racist. And from what we have read, the word aborigine is generally perceived, again, to be insensitive because it has racist connotations from Australia's col- colonial past. Um, most colonial pasts are trash. Um, but uh, And lumps people with diverse backgrounds into one single group, saying, Aboriginal person or Aboriginal First Peoples of Australia or Australian First Peoples or Torres Strait Islander is more acceptable. So that was a lot. Sorry. (laughs) So the word Aboriginal means original inhabitant in Latin, but it's also used to describe flora and fauna. So that's why some people uh, find it offensive because it's like, here we have this flower and over there is this other thing that might be a person. Being, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so using the person's clan or tribe name is better. And if you're talking about both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, it's best to say either Indigenous Australians or Indigenous people. If you're in a listener in Australia, please, please correct us if we're wrong. Yes, absolutely. We want to get it right here. And yeah. look, uh, sometimes we don't. We're yeah. doing our best. Yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, so the original inhabitants of the area around Sydney spoke the Eora language. Other dialects of the Sydney Sydney area include Darug, uh, Karungai, and Dwawal. I apologize for the pronunciation. There are about 29 clan groups of the Sydney metropolitan area referred to collectively as the Eora Nation. The Eora people were hunters and gatherers and inhabited coastal campsites where fish and shellfish were plentiful. Song and dance were important elements of their lives, and rock engravings depicting humans and native animals such as whales and wallabies have been found throughout the Sydney area, although many have since been covered by roads and buildings. That's really shameful. Yeah, um, it is. 
yeah, colonizers do that. They try to erase people's histories. And so in Australia, that's exactly what it looks like they tried they to did. do. Yeah. Um, on January 26th, 1788, the first fleet, 11 ships carrying 700 British conv- convicts and 150 officers and Marine guards arrived in Botany Bay. Botany Bay was where a penal colony was uh, to be established, but the site was judged unfit and it was then moved to Port Jackson. And hadn't you always heard that like in, in somewhere in, in like your memory that Australia was just where British people sent their criminals? They dumped convicts. Yeah. Yeah. There was a TV series in 2015 called Banished, which was mm-hmm. set during this time. And it was about the first Australian penal colony. And mm-hmm. I was super excited about it because, uh, you know, I like period mm-hmm. pieces and and learning about history and stuff like that. But uh, unfortunately, it turned out to be crap. So don't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't fuck with period pieces because there's never any black people in them. <laughs> in america australia is famous like we were talking about for having been a penal colony but Mm -hmm. what many americans don't realize is that the u.s was also used as a penal colony by both britain and france in fact britain only started using australia as a penal colony after the revolutionary war when they could no longer send prisoners to the united states Whoa, that's fascinating. So they dumped their convicts over here, too. Wow, look at that. Um, (laughs) Well, uh, thank you. (laughs) I'm like learning so much. Uh, So, of course, because Australia was not uninhabited, the British encountered indigenous people around Port Jackson. The original inhabitants were sometimes generous and sometimes combative toward the colonizers, and understandably so. We already fucking live here. Can't we just live? Go away. So the first free settlers, five single men and two families, arrived in 1793. Over time, more free settlers arrived and convicts began earning their freedom. The increasing European population was devastating to Australia's indigenous communities. Thousands Mm. died as British settlers drove people off their lands and brought diseases like measles, smallpox, and tuberculosis. Everybody was fine before y'all showed up. Um, so, and this is another tangent. So I've been, um, talking, I've been in a lot of, um, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, People of Color, um, Zoom meetings lately. And, um, some of them are, are LGBTQ people of color. And one interesting theme that has been coming up is how the idea of like how a family is supposed to have a mom and a dad and there are only two genders is something that colonizers sort of forced on black and brown people that they colonized. Before that, black and brown people were like, everybody's everybody, you know, just be cool. <laughs> and yeah, uh, there are lots of different uh family groups and mm-hmm. there were um i can't remember uh where this was i believe it was in africa there was one group of people where the um children lived with the mothers and the grandmothers and the aunts and the men had to go live somewhere else <laughs> Oh, that sounds <laughs> it was good. a matriarchal Uh-oh. society and yeah, yeah. the men were kind of um, banished. <laughs> so there's all yeah, kinds of different family groups. Yeah. And I was listening to a podcast about um, Cherokee nations before 
colonizers came in and fucked shit up. And um, the women were really the leaders and in charge of um, the um, entire society and how like when there was a decision about going to war, the women had most of the say because their, their sons and their husbands, you know, would be going off to war. So they made better decisions because women tend to do that uh, (laughs) because they had more skin in the game than these men who just wanted to go and like fight for no reason. So anyway, (laughs) tangent by, by 1900, the numbers of indigenous Australians had fallen from around 750,000 to 93,000. Fuck. And I'm not good at math, but that's a lot. Uh, Surviving indigenous Australians were segregated from the rest of society and forced to abandon their own culture to adopt British customs. Many even had their children taken away. The population began to recover in the early 1900s, but between 1910 and 1970, many indigenous children were forcibly removed from their families. The generations of children taken from their families became known as the stolen generations. Mm. The child removal policies left a legacy of trauma and loss that continues to affect indigenous communities, families, and individuals to this day. 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. 
a new podcast from Crowd Network. Right. And children taken from their parents as part of the stolen generation were taught to reject their indigenous heritage and forced to adopt white culture. Their names were often changed and they were forbidden to speak their traditional languages. Some children uh, were adopted by white families and many were placed in institutions where abuse and neglect were common. That's awful. Yeah. The forcible removal of indigenous children from their families was part of a policy called assimilation. Assimilation was based on the assumption of black inferiority and white superiority, which proposed that indigenous people should be allowed to, quote unquote, die out through a process of natural elimination or, where possible, should be assimilated into the white community. Yeah, you see that all over the world. Yeah. Um, where the you know white white um, colonizers will come in and uh, in the United States and in Canada they um, have these Indian schools um, similar to what they had in Australia right. and exactly. the motto was save the man but kill the Indian yeah uh, which is fucking Awful. disgusting yeah. and diabolical how can people look at themselves in the mirror and do this to people um, anyway. Uh, I'm going to calm down. Assimilation failed its aim of improving the lives of indigenous Australians by absorbing them into white society. White society refused to accept indigenous people as equals, regardless of their efforts to live like white people. So we're over here just trying to assimilate, trying to survive, and you all still won't leave us the fuck alone. (laughs) (laughs) And this is from the website Australia Together. For the children who were taken, many were psychologically, physically, and sexually abused while living in state care or with their adoptive families. Efforts to make stolen children reject their culture often cause them to feel ashamed of their indigenous heritage. Many children were wrongly told that their parents had died or abandoned them, and many never knew where they had been taken from or who their biological families were. Living conditions in the institutions were highly controlled, and children were frequently punished harshly, uh, were cold and hungry, and received minimal, if any, affection. This is so awful. Yeah. The children generally received a very low level of education as they were expected to work only as manual laborers and domestic servants. Mm. Medical experts have noted a high incidence of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, and suicide among the stolen generations. Understandably so. Yeah. I mean, I don't I, I hope nobody is surprised by that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's... I've talked about this before on um, past episodes, the idea of weathering that black and brown bodies suffer as a result of the stress of dealing with um, racism and um, just the um, generational trauma. Um, And that's why our life expectancies are way less than my white female counterparts. Um, Anyway, uh, for their families, many parents never recovered from the grief of having their children removed. Some parents could not go on living without their children, while others turned to alcohol as a coping mechanism. The removal of several generations of children severely disrupted uh, indigenous oral culture, right? That's how um, their histories got passed down. And consequently, much cultural knowledge was lost. Many of the stolen generations never experienced living in a healthy family family situation and never learned parenting skills. In some instances, this has resulted in generations of children raised in state care. 
Right. But I wonder um, how much of that is perpetuated by this idea of white supremacy, that white people are better at parenting oh, and I'm judging sure. good parents. I'm sure. Yeah, because they, they destroyed their culture and mm-hmm. they did not give them the skills that they need. And then they use that as a tool against them. To weaponize. Them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 And um, so yep. they never really get the chance to um, stick together as a family when the government is just coming in and saying, nope, you guys suck at this because you're brown and black. Yeah. Bye. Um, uh, so in 1965, after the civil rights movement had picked up steam in the United States and led to policy changes, Australians saw what was possible in their segregated indigenous communities. Organizers took surveys to gather data demonstrating the differences in how indigenous Australians lived versus how um, white people lived. At the time of the Freedom Ride in 1965, some indigenous people of Australia were counted separately in the census and their rights as citizens were regularly ignored. Students from the University of Sydney formed a group called the Student Action for Aborigines, led by Charles Perkins, who was the first Indigenous Australian to graduate tertiary education, among others, and traveled into New South Wales country towns on what some of them considered a fact-finding mission. What they encountered was a was de facto segregation. The students protested, picketed, and faced violence, raising the issue of indigenous rights. They commonly stood protesting for hours at segregated areas such as pools, parks, and pubs, which raised a mixed reception in the country towns. And by I think mixed reception is a um, euphemism for white people losing their minds about these <laughs> indigenous people coming in and shouting all these disgusting racial things, throwing things at them. They were met with violence. I mean, it wasn't pretty, but the cameras cut all of it. So Yeah, their efforts and the efforts against them was caught on camera and it shocked the white Australian community who had previously been able to ignore the plight of indigenous people. Australia overwhelmingly passed a 1967 referendum removing discriminatory sections from the Australian Constitution, and it enabled the federal government to take direct action in Indigenous affairs. That is great. Um, Another interesting thing that you'll see throughout history is BIPOC people, Black Indigenous people of color are always like fighting. And whenever legislation is passed, it's not like the indigenous people in Australia are like, whoa, thank goodness. Now I'm just going to stop working. My fight is over. over. It's it's never never over. over. Um, So uh, racial discrimination became illegal in Australia in 1976, but indigenous people are still much worse off in terms of health, education, and unemployment. New generations have inherited their relatives' deep trauma and anger for losing their lands, cultures, and families. Many end up trapped by poverty and crime. Again, not their fault. Uh, Today, Australia's Indigenous kids are 24 times more likely to be locked up than their non-Indigenous classmates. In 2011, there was an estimated 670,000 Indigenous people in Australia, making up about 3% of the country's total inhabitants. The recent Black Lives Matter protests going on in America have resonated with the indigenous populations in Australia. Indigenous people face the same police brutality and disparities in the justice system, daily racism, in employment, housing, and education as Black people in the United States. Just goes to show that white supremacy is a global virus. 
Uh, so now we are going to get into the killer's early life. What do you got, Beth? Malcolm John Naden is an indigenous Australian man who was born on November 5th, 1973. He grew up in Dubbo, New South Wales, Australia, which is four hours inland from Sydney and halfway between Melbourne and Brisbane. Melbourne. Melbourne. Um, Melbourne. <laughs> Real housewives of Melbourne. Um, hey, mate. Uh, so Dubbo has thousands of indigenous people, but uh, about one fifth of its population of 40,000. Malcolm's father was a blade shearer, which is the traditional technique of shearing sheep and other animals like llamas and alpacas. Uh, do you remember that scene? In, I'm going on so many tangents. I'm really sorry. Uh, that scene in American Gangster when Denzel Washington like beats a guy to death on his um in his living room and uh the guy's like bleeding all over his carpet and uh somebody starts to like wipe it up and Denzel Washington was like you black that shit that's twenty five thousand dollar alpaca you don't you don't rub that you black that I just every time I see what? a word alpaca that's what I have so that's what that's, you think of that's where my mind goes. <laughs> So using a special scissors-like tool called blade shears, he actually appeared as a traditional blade shearer in an ABC television series called Outback House, uh, which replicated Australian pioneer life. His mother, Shirley, was one of eight children. Her father, Jack Nolan, Malcolm's grandfather, was born in the bush in 1927. Jack worked many different jobs from horse breaking to fencing, driving trucks, graders and bulldozers, picking fruit and construction. Even in retirement, Jack cut firewood for people in West Dubbo, where he and his wife Florence lived in the same house for more than 40 years. When he was a teenager, Malcolm's father, uh, who was known as a tough disciplinarian, kicked him out of the house and he removed it or he moved in with his grandparents. We don't know why he was kicked out, only that he was. Malcolm later claimed he was abused as a child and he may have been. We don't know. Malcolm was interested in martial arts and he became a black belt in Taekwondo. He would sometimes punch sand in buckets to toughen his hands. Whoa. Some of the other activities he enjoyed were hunting and fishing. Uh, so far, it sounds pretty normal. Uh, growing up, Malcolm never got in trouble with the law. He moved, he mowed lawns and cut wood to raise money, and he helped his grandparents around the house. He read the Bible. When he got older, he found jobs, but he never stayed in one job for very long. One of the jobs that Malcolm worked was as a skinner and boner. <laughs> I'm so immature. And a local slaughterhouse. Malcolm had trouble making friends and he would sometimes go all day without saying a word. Mm. At one point, he dated a Filipina woman who wanted to marry him, but he was not interested in getting married. Mm, interesting. Uh, so now we're going to get into the timeline. So in May of 2004, at the age of 30, Naden was charged with indecently assaulting a 12-year-old girl in the outer suburbs of Dubbo. The girl reported that Naden touched her vagina and grabbed her breasts when he stayed over at her parents' house. An arrest warrant was issued. But Naden could not be found. He was still living with his grandparents, Jack and Florence Nolan. But whenever the police came looking for him, they were told that he wasn't there. Hmm. In truth, his grandparents thought he was innocent of the charges and they didn't want the police to know that he was there. So they were hiding him, um, which to me, I don't know, it, it doesn't sound 
unusual, right? Like your yeah, your grandparents, they'd want to protect you. Like, I don't know if there's any circumstance where I would give up like my my kids or my grandkids um, if I believed that they were innocent. You know, if right. the police came around right. or. You know, especially if you don't you don't trust the police. Exactly. Uh, This divided the family somewhat, as not everyone in the family believed that he was innocent of the charges. Then in January 2005, Letitia Nolan, a 24 year old mother of four children aged five, four, three and one, disappeared. Letitia was Naden's cousin. They shared the same grandparents, and at the time, she was also staying with Jack and Florence Nolan. The father of her children, with whom she had a long-term committed relationship, was working in another location, and she often stayed with her grandparents while he was away. At about 9.30 p.m. on January 4th, 2005, Florence was watching Letitia's children for her. Letitia drove to her grandparents' house and asked her grandmother if she could babysit for a little while longer so she could run an errand. And her grandmother agreed. So she headed back out. On her way out, Letitia ran into Naden. Naden later said that she offered to give him a ride to Sandy Beach because he wanted to go fishing. A family member disputes this, and I think it was her mother, mm-hmm. saying that Letitia didn't like him and would not have offered him a ride. In any case, he said he got into the backseat of her car and they headed to Sandy Beach. Did you watch the documentary? I did. Me too. Okay. I watched it twice. <laughs> wow. I found it really dry. Oh, I thought it was really interesting. Oh, man. I fell asleep. <laughs> I had to finish it the next day. Uh, so on the way, Letitia mentioned the allegation that she'd heard that Naden had assaulted a girl. Naden became enraged. And when she parked the car, he strangled Letitia from the back seat. Letitia fought hard to remove Naden's hands from her neck, but she was unable to break free. Once she was dead, Naden moved Letitia's body to the passenger seat of her car and drove to Butler Falls. He then moved Letitia's body from the vehicle to an area near the McCary River. He dug a hole beside the river, dismembered Letitia's body, and buried it. Hey, have you ever been in Australia? I haven't. I'd love to go, though. Me too. There are a lot of things there that can kill you, though, besides racism. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of crazy bugs and stuff, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, Giant spiders and crabs and... Yeah, Yeah, snakes. Yeah. Kangaroos can kill you. Oh, I like kangaroos, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're cute and all, but I mean, they can't they like punch and kick you to death? Yeah, they can kick the shit out of you. Yeah. Mm. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Hi, 
I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Okay, I'll go with you. Uh, Maiden (laughs) removed and disposed of the car seat covers in the car to destroy any forensic evidence. He then drove the car to a place near a footbridge spanning the Macari River and abandoned it. The car was discovered around 5.50 a.m. Letitia's family reported her missing, but according to her father, Mick Pete, it was difficult to get the police interested, and they told the family that she had probably just run away. So he made up some posters and had people put them up all over town. Now, why do you think that the police were not interested? It might be something that starts with an R and ends with a racism. Hey, (laughs) (laughs) you guessed it. I'll take racism for a thousand, Alex. Uh, So Naden had started holding himself up in his room after the allegation of sexual assault. The door locked and blankets over the windows. His grandparents would leave food at his door for him to eat, and he would get the food, but then close the door again, not coming out. He switched from reading the Bible to reading crime books and survival manuals. I wonder if he'd be a fan of podcasts, (laughs) specifically Fruit Loops. Probably. Probably be a fan of podcasts. (laughs) He would leave his room, but not through the door. He started going in and out through the window. Hmm. Nobody knew when he was there or not, or where he was going when he left. He went in and out the window so often that the windowsill became like a worn doorstep. Hmm. Sometimes he would also hide in the roof space. Now, can you imagine having this dude living in your house like this? That would be so fucking weird. It would be creepy, but... I mean, I don't know. Grandparents have such big hearts. You yeah. know what I mean? That yeah. I think my grandma, I don't I don't know if my grandma would like yell at me or, uh, you know, if or if she would just be like, oh, that's just Wendy. Yeah. Yeah. They were probably She's going like, through something. That's just Malcolm. That's what he do. Yeah. <laughs> he's, yeah. He's just, yeah. you know, we're just going to pray for him. And yeah. uh, you know what I mean? Yep. Uh, so, but I had a praying grandmother. <laughs> uh, so in mid-June of 2005, Jack Nolan had to go to Sydney for triple bypass heart surgery. Of course, his wife Flo went with him. One of Nate's aunts, Margaret Walker, who lived next door, also went. At the same time, the Walker's house was being painted. Naden's cousin, Reg Walker, his partner, 24-year-old Christy Scholes, and their two children had temporarily moved into Jack and Florence Nolan's house while the painting was being done. 
When Reg went to Sydney for a few days, Christy and her kids were alone in the Nolan house with Malcolm Naden. While staying there, Christy found a handwritten note from Naden that was sexually suggestive, which made her understandably very uncomfortable. She spoke to an extended family member about 9 p.m. on the evening of June 21st, 2005, and told them how uncomfortable she was. Later on that evening of June 21st, 2005, Naden crept up on Christy while she was standing in the bathroom washing her hands. He attacked her from behind and strangled her to death as her children slept in a bedroom nearby. Mm. He then dragged her to his room and raped her body. (gasps) Afterwards, he dressed her, covered her body with a blanket and fled out the window, leaving the bedroom door locked. Oh my God. The next day, Christy's four-year-old daughter, Libby, uh, climbed out of the window and found her uncle, Ian Walker, who lived in the granny flat next door. A granny flat is a self-contained home that is built on the same plot of land that the main the main home is. In the U.S., we sometimes call them mother-in-law uh, suites or mother-in-law houses, bas- basically a guest house. And by the way, we didn't comment too much on Christy or Letitia, but my understanding is they were both really good moms and... Yeah both uh always wanted to be moms and so they were just really like loving towards their kids was my understanding from the documentary so yeah sorry we didn't touch on that yeah libby told ian that she couldn't find her mom ian went into the nolan house and found libby's little brother johnny locked in a room the same room that libby had climbed out of the window from he was dirty upset and hungry Naden's bedroom was also locked, and there was no sign of Christy. That evening, police forced open Naden's bedroom door and found Christy's body. Naden was gone, but before he left, he had taken all of the photos of himself in the house, tore them up, and scratched his face out of the photos that he wasn't able to remove. He obviously did not want police to know what he looked like. As police were searching the home, they found peepholes in the ceiling. It's believed that when Naden would go up into the roof space, he did so to spy on the girls and women in the home, Letitia, Christy, and two other girls. It was learned from family members that Naden had left sexually suggestive notes for other female family members, including Letitia Nolan. So uh, Naden became the main suspect in Christie's murder. And when police came to the realization that this was the home that Letitia had disappeared from as well, he also became the suspect in her disappearance. The family kept Christie's death from the grandparents until Jack recovered from his surgery. When they learned what happened, they abandoned the house they'd lived in since the early 1960s. A $50,000 reward for the capture of Malcolm Naden was posted. So now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. So Naden went on the run, hiding in the Australian bush for seven years and sparking one of the biggest manhunts in Australian history. Quote unquote, the bush is a uniquely Australian term, which refers to any sparsely inhabited region, regardless of vegetation. So it can be scrubland, forest, any area that is undeveloped. Dubbo's biggest tourist attraction is the Western Plains Zoo. In December 2005, people working there began to report strange noises and things going missing in and around the zoo. 
One day, a female employee went into the laundry and came face-to-face with a man matching Naden's description going through the laundry. Zoo's security guards also confronted a male in the bushes who fled. Someone was stealing food, particularly bananas, from the elephant house. (laughs) I don't know why that makes me laugh. (laughs) An uneaten and out-of-date food was being taken from a dumpster behind the zoo's restaurant. Uh, Feed bags from the elephant house were found behind the rhino enclosure, forming a bed. Chocolate milk containers and pie wrappers were found around the bedding. It's just the the image that I have. Yeah. Hanging out behind the rhino enclosure with my pies and chocolate milk. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like. It's nuts. Yeah. Like that's what a little boy would do. A child. Yeah. Yeah. There was a cabin on the zoo grounds where some of the staff lived and food started disappearing from it too. One man said that he heard what sounded like a possum on the roof space. It's alleged in some articles that Naden did not stop at stealing food, that he actually killed a Galapagos tortoise (gasps) and ate part of that, too. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. Man. Wow. Um, And then what did he do with the shell? Like, use it as armor? (laughs) (laughs) Like, uh, I don't know, a Ninja Turtle Halloween costume? I don't know. Do they celebrate Halloween in Australia? Yeah, they do. But those those tortoises are giant. I know. Um, Well, I mean, he was gone for seven years. So, you know, if they're so giant, there must have been a lot of meat. Um, Around Christmas, the zoo was closed and heavily armed police went in to search for Naden. But they did not find him. Later, he told authorities that he was actually outside the zoo, that he built a hole in the ground, lay in it while police were searching the zoo, then took off. Police found Naden's fingerprints in the cabin around a trap door leading up to the attic. In the middle of the attic was a sheet of plywood covered with a blanket, a pillow, empty water bottles, and some magazines. And they believe that he was spying on female employees. Mm. In 2007, a house was burgled. <laughs> I don't think I've said that word before out loud. I think it's an Australian term. Oh, maybe, okay. Burgled. Or English term. <laughs> okay. Burgled in Stewart's Brook. The place was dusted for fingerprints and they were Nadens. Stewart's Brook is near Barrington Tops, which is described as uh, Bush Ranger territory. Bush Rangers were outlaws in the 17 to 1800s who lived in the bush and committed robbery to get by. Barrington Tops is riddled with caves and has plenty of water, game, and remote properties. Later the same year, on the other side of Barrington Tops and up the coast, a woman near Kempsey woke to find a man in a mask in her mm. room. Police dusted for fingerprints and found Nadens. That would be very scary. Uh, He then left DNA at a property east of Scone, which is back closer to Stewart's Brook. And the fingerprints at a place at Mount Mooney in Barrington Tops. So he was ranging all over and appeared to sometimes be living off the land and at other times breaking into homes and cabins to steal supplies. Gerilyn Pickering worked as a caretaker at the Misty Mountain Health Retreat, a facility that's located in an isolated area of New South Wales. The location is about a five-hour drive from Barrington Tops. Gerilyn regularly jogged in the mornings and afterwards would go skinny dipping in a nearby creek. 
Mm. Because of the retreat's isolation, Geraldine knew nothing about the search for Malcolm Naden. One day in October 2008, she startled a man trying to break into one of the huts. She yelled at him and he fled. She also began noticing food missing from the pantry and weird noises like creaking on the veranda outside of her hut. Yikes. On October 30th, she was awoken in the middle of the night when someone shone a flashlight into her hut through the window. Gerilyn screamed and the intruder left. The next morning, Gerilyn found a handwritten note that said, quote, nice moles. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. I just dropped my knees and pray immediately. Uh, Gerilyn called her boss, who called the police. The police came out and dusted for fingerprints. It had been Malcolm Naden, and he had most likely been spying on her. The note commenting on the moles on her back that he had seen while she was skinny dipping. Yikes. Yeah. On October 17th, 2011, several boys fishing along the Macquarie River, approximately 10 to 12 kilometers downstream from Butler's Falls, found a pink wallet containing the driver's license and Medicare card belonging to Letitia Nolan. But police were still unable to find her body. Police came close to catching Naden on numerous occasions. On one occasion, in December of 2011, they came the closest yet to capturing him. They had bugged a sleeping bag that Naden stole, which allowed them to locate his campsite at Nowendock on the northern tablelands. But when they crept up on the site, Naden shot at them, seriously injuring an officer, and then he fled. This infuriated police, and they doubled up on the search for Naden. The reward for his capture was bumped up to $250,000, and the search area was expanded. Police placed scores of movement sensors around the Hunter Valley. Ooh, it's on now. Mm -hmm. uh, in the media, Naden was often compared to the Bush Ranger Ned Kelly, an outlaw who lived in the 1800s. Kelly had been mythologized into a sort of Robin Hood character and is infamous in Australia as a folk hero, sort, sort of like a Jesse James in the American West. Uh, Jesse James is no hero of mine. What people seem to forget <laughs> is that Naden killed two women and he was no hero. A lot of the sources I um, went to about this were like, um, just so angry that people were like rooting for him. Yeah, there was a lot of people rooting for him. Yeah. Yeah. He also committed at least 95 breaking and entering crimes where he stole non-perishable food, flashlights, camping gear, clothes, raincoats, binoculars, essentially survival gear. So he wasn't exactly living off the land. And towards the end, he started getting sloppy. Mm. Uh, two weeks after the incident at Noandok, a man who owned a cabin in Nyangala caught someone on the remote CCTV breaking into his place. I was under the impression that the cabin was uh, like a vacation or weekend home, and the man was on his regular, regular home when he saw the break-in. In any case, he contacted the police. With the specialist team away searching a different area, Two general duty officers were dispatched to the property. They approached the cabin and saw Naden in the doorway, but he managed to escape out of a back window and got away. 
inside the cabin, Naden had uh, been on the computer watching porn, <laughs> as one does. Uh, during the whole time that he had been in the cabin, the only thing he searched on the internet was porn. Wow. He never even bothered to Google himself. Yeah, that's what they expected to see when they looked at the internet history. They're like, <laughs> I bet he Googled himself. Nope, he's watching no, porn. <laughs> no, there are more important things like beating this meat. Uh he also he had also cooked some meals and police found a rifle that was later positively identified as the gun that Naden had used to shoot the officer in Noandock. Starting around this time in the places that Naden had broken into, police found random pieces of fabric slashed with a knife. Sheets, clothing, shower curtains, things like that. And it's believed that he started slashing the fabric in anger and frustration. Oh, in December of 2011, the NSW police dog unit began searching the bush for Naden around Gloucester on a regular basis. December in Australia is the middle of the summer, so it was hot and humid, and the air was heavy with flies and mosquitoes. The bush was thick, and sometimes it was hard for the police officers to even see their dogs at the end of their leads. They spent day in, day out in the bush, hoping the dogs would pick up Naden's scent. The hunt went on through January, February, and then March. According to Luke Warburton, who handled a dog named Chucky, a regular day consisted of getting up at 6 a.m., having breakfast, and getting to work at 7 a.m., and that happened every day for months. Work began with a briefing to determine the search patterns of the area we'd been assigned. Then we'd head to the bush and remain out there for eight to ten hours each day. And if there was another sighting, just as we were about to knock off, we'd be deployed again. Then on March 22nd, 2012, after they had been out all day and had gone back to Gloucester to shower and have something to eat, the unit was called back around 8 p.m. and they were told to head to the command post. An image of Naden had been captured by a bush cam and he was heading towards a hut called Ken's Hut, approximately 30 kilometers outside of Gloucester. Around 9.30 or 10 p.m., the unit drove up a few kilometers away from Ken's Hut, then began to walk in on foot. There were about 20 to 25 officers and three dog handlers. They wore night vision goggles and were as silent as possible. As they got closer to the hut, they could smell a fire burning. Soon, they saw the glow of a fire through the hut's window. Very slowly, they surrounded the hut when suddenly a man appeared at the back door. He stood there taking a piss, gazing up at the night sky. (laughs) (laughs) But when one of the officers accidentally stepped on a piece of corrugated iron, the man bolted back into the hut and made for the front door. As he ran out the front door, officers shouted at him to stop. Officer Warburton gave Chucky the command to grab hold of Naden's leg. At the same time, a couple of officers were wrestling him to the ground. Chucky went in and grabbed hold of Naden's right calf and maintained his bite until the officers had Naden handcuffed. One of the officers shouted, what's your name? What's your name? The man said, Malcolm, Malcolm Naden. Then thank God it's over. According to Warburton, he was obviously unkempt, but his speech wasn't too bad for someone who had been on the run for so long and probably hadn't spoken to anyone in almost seven years. Mm. In fact, he was quite polite. He was not what I expected at all. By the way, 
that sounds a tad racist to me. Uh, you know, I didn't. I, I I understand what you're saying, but I I don't think that was what he meant. I think he meant like this guy's been on the run for seven years, hasn't mm-hmm. talked to anybody, mm-hmm. and um, he's normal. He's acting mm. normal. You know. Mm. Mm, That's how okay. I took it. But but okay. I, I understand what you're saying because, yeah, you could read it that way. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know what's in this man's heart. I don't know <laughs> if he has like a, a KKK hood in his closet somewhere. <laughs> I just know when I read that, I was like, hmm, hmm. maybe not racist. go to this guy's house for Thanksgiving. <laughs> uh, so Naden was treated at Gloucester Hospital for the dog bite on his calf, for which he had to have surgery. He later claimed that he was glad the dog uh, had bit him because it made him feel something. From the time Naden was taken into custody, the only detectives allowed to speak with him were Ricky Hennessy and Paul Mangan. The Homicide Squad commander, Detective Superintendent Michael Willing, felt that if they could build a rapport with Naden, they would be more likely to get a confession from him. And they did. Hmm. Over the next six weeks, Naden confessed to all of his crimes and indicated his intention to plead guilty to them. He said he survived in the outback by eating wild animals, ranging from snakes, lizards, porcupine, birds, and even worms, which he said tasted like shit. (laughs) (laughs) I can only imagine. Yeah. (laughs) But according to police, he mostly survived by breaking into properties between 2007 and 2012, stealing thousands of items of food and clothing as well as weapons. Among the items taken were beer, five kilograms of raw cashews, a semi-automatic rifle, and a book titled Dreams. Hmm. (laughs) On April 10th, Naden gave uh, Hennessy and uh, Mangan a confession that he'd handwritten while in Goldburn's Supermax prison. In the note, he had also drawn a map to where he buried Letitia. He was then escorted to Butler's Falls, the area where he said he disposed of Letitia's body. But a massive dig failed to find her. Two floods had been through there and the landscape had changed. So now we're going to get into the trial. So on in 2013, Naden ple- pleaded guilty to the 32 counts against him. Naden told a prison psychiatrist that those walls were broken down. Once you kill someone, you can't put them back. You can't put those walls back up. You're going to kill again. He also said he was a serial killer who had dreamed of killing since he was 12 years old. Wow. He wrote a 25-page confession. In it, he said, quote, I killed her. Why? There was no real reason. It seems as though I must have my own search party plumb the depths of myself and see what it uncovers. If it wasn't her, it would have been someone else. The normal feelings I should have just weren't registering the way they should have. I just know something went wrong somewhere and I'm unable to put my finger on it. I've killed people close to me and I've confessed to doing it. I'd like to say I feel something for the victims, but it would be a lie. There was no reason for my actions. It was really a senseless, uncaring and regrettable waste of life for both Christy Skulls and Letitia. Uh, During his sentencing hearing, the psychologist called by the Crown, Dr. David 
Greenberg, having read Naden's confessions and examining him on three occasions, gave evidence that Naden exhibited uh, psychopathic and schizoid traits, but that he also had above average intelligence. In terms of diagnosable disorders, he had no more than mild depression. Quote, I've already done it. Can't see what the big deal is, unquote, Naden reportedly told Greenberg. He then said he believed the murders were, quote, a test and, quote, an achievement. Yet on another occasion, he falsely told the psychiatrist he was guilty of three other murders, deliberately exaggerating the level of his crimes because he wanted the toughest sentence possible. Hmm. They'll give me a life sentence. I'll never get out. Naden reportedly told Professor Greenberg, but the psychiatrist said he believed Naden's false admissions may have been an attempt to deflect police attention away from the sexual nature of his offending. The evidence revealed that Naden not only killed Christy Scholes, but also had sex with her body. It's believed that he did the same with Letitia Nolan. Naden was sentenced to life behind bars with a non-parole period of 40 years. When sentenced, Naden said, thank you, Your Honor. Mm. Okay, so now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, let me tell you. The father of Letitia Nolan, Mick Pete, said the entire saga felt like a nightmare I'll never wake up from. The signs of the way he was living in a room blacked out. I'm thinking alarm bells should have been running somewhere. If anybody who knows anybody else who lives like this, give them help. I don't want them to end up like me without a daughter. Ooh, wow. Um, Ten years after her murder, a memorial of a traditional wooden carving and black marble plaque was unveiled at Debo Sandy Beach, where Letitia was from. It's a place where her children and family can go to pay their respects and remember her. Mick Pete also has a memorial for Letitia in his front garden. It features photos, candles, and seven blue roses, because blue was her favorite color, he said. We often have close friends come over just to sit in that special spot with us and talk about Letitia. Well, yeah. And I guess at the time of his conviction, nobody knew where Letitia's body was. They hadn't found her. Right. There was all these memorials. Um, On Sunday, November 24th, 2014, Naden was in the prison yard at about 2.20 p.m. when he was attacked by his cousin, Dean Nolan. Nolan hit Naden in the head with the handle of a sandwich toaster. He landed several blows before he was subdued by staff at the prison. A New South Wales Corrective Services spokeswoman confirmed that Naden suffered head and facial wounds, but he survived. Dean Nolan, uh, who is Naden's cousin, also a relative of Letitia Nolan, was in jail serving a 25-year jail term for the murder of an 11-year-old boy. So don't get too happy about uh, him beating up Nathan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But don't you wonder what happened to these young men growing up? Yes. You know, for them to both be from the same family and have um, murders people? under their belts. Yeah. 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 Um, in 2016, some bones were found near uh, Butler Falls. DNA tests confirmed that they were Letitia Nolan's. Letitia's father, Mick Pete, said his grandchildren now, at last, had a proper place to visit their mother after the traditional Aboriginal burial took place. Letitia's children, Keisha, Erica, Jaden, and Shakela Nolan, I think that's a pretty name, Shakela, 
um, were raised by their maternal grandmother, Joan Nolan. Keisha wrote online, on this day, our lives changed, changed forever and our childhood was over. For seven years, we didn't know what happened to our mom and we never got to say goodbye. For 12 years, we searched for her and, and endured the most horrific sadness and loneliness a child should ever have to go through. We have no mother to share our achievements, to cuddle us when we feel lonely and sad, or just to be there for us. Oh my God, that really breaks your heart. Yeah. Um, shout out to Keisha. And another thing to keep in mind is these two moms, you know, between the two of them had six kids. So that's six mm -hmm. kids. Um, with, with no mom. With no mom. Um, really devastating. So now we're going to get into what we think made him snap, as well as our takeaways. So um, we don't know enough about his family, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I'd like to know if his parents and or both his grandparents and his parents maybe were mm -hmm. part of the stolen generation mm. and uh, generational trauma is real. It is. Um, it, and if you think about it like this, um, if your grandfather was an alcoholic, his kids, one of your parents, whatever, um, learned to behave a certain way because he's an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And then when they raise you, they have those quirks and weird behaviors because their father was an alcoholic, even though your parents weren't alcoholics. It's just, it just keeps going on. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's just a small thing, you know, having your children ripped away from you and put it, put into institutional care where they're abused mm -hmm. and sexually abused. And it, it just, it's fucked up. Mm -hmm. It's just can't even imagine. I don't, I don't know what happened to these people, but mm -hmm. it wasn't good things. <laughs> nope, 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 nope. And Naden said that he was abused as a child and that he at one time had feces rubbed in his face. <gasps> Oh. And it, it's very possible. Um, uh -huh. We know that most serial killers suffered abuse as children. Not all, but most mm -hmm. of them did. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to say that uh, he was pretty unusual. I mean, we cover a lot of serial killers, but he, he was an odd duck. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, he was. He was a loner, um, mm -hmm. maybe because he had all these weird thoughts that mm -hmm. he couldn't share with other people. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, we talked about this when they captured him, that officer said that he wasn't what he expected. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think what they, they expected to find was this wild, crazy man. Mm -hmm. um, but he was very well-spoken, even though what he had to say was awful. Yeah. Um, I watched, <laughs> I watched some of the, um, his interviews, interviews. And uh -huh. uh, yeah, I mean, he, he seemed, normal <laughs> you're like what what in the fuck what is happening yeah <laughs> what is going he, he on here some pretty chilling things oh um, yeah the, like i said the things it, that he said were mm -hmm. pretty fucked up mm -hmm. but the way mm -hmm. that he said them he seemed normal it, it yeah. was pretty weird i have to say yeah he didn't seem um monstrous like his demeanor no. wasn't no monstrous but the things that came out of his mouth very yeah. scary yes. yeah and, and i don't i don't have anything to add other than um it's just really really sad that he killed two women in his family like the the in his trail, family yeah, yeah. The trail of tears and pain that um are left in his wake within his own family is just um Awful. yeah yeah like i i 
I want to, I want to, I want a documentary about this whole family, like how they're doing now. Um, yeah, that would be really interesting. Well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's all I got. So now we are going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. Mm, what do you got, Beth? So we often say, we tell you guys to trust your gut, but we don't talk about it in length. And mm. I think this is a pretty good episode to get into that. Yes. Ignoring your gut can get you hurt, killed, assaulted, or robbed. Mm. Police officers and rape crisis counselors have said that when they're interviewing victims, most of the time the victim will say something like, I knew something was wrong or I had a bad feeling. Mm -hmm. Respect that inner voice. Think about situations where you had a bad feeling or were uncomfortable. That was your gut warning you. Once you are aware of what that feels like, be in tune with it and learn to recognize it. Mm. Don't try to figure it out or or use logic. Just listen to your gut and escape the situation. Mm -hmm. And do not waver from your safety practices just because someone else thinks that they are silly. Crimes often happen when you relax regular safety practices out of convenience or embarrassment. Mm-hmm. Both Letitia and Christy had bad feelings about Naden. We don't know why Letitia got in the car with Naden. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes we're dissuaded from trusting our instincts because of a potential reward. Maybe he offered her gas money or something like that. I don't know. But mm-hmm. if you you are offered some type of reward, like, uh, you know, you drive me here, I'll give you 20 bucks or something like that. Mm-hmm. But you have a bad feeling about that person. Just leave it. You don't need that money. It's not worth your life. Mm. Um, she she might have been manipulated by Naden. He might have tried to make her feel bad about not giving him a ride. My brother used to do stuff like that. Um, just remember, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. Uh, and recognizing when you're being manipulated, when someone is guilt tripping you, um, put your safety before your politeness. Doesn't matter. You can be rude. <laughs> if trust your gut. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> Christy was creeped out by Naden, and I'm pretty sure she didn't want to be in that house with him. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe she felt like she was being silly and thought she'd waited out and that Naden was just a weird cat, but he wouldn't hurt her. Um, but she was wrong, of course. Act on your inner voice without hesitation and without questioning the validity. Mm-hmm. Once you get that bad feeling, believe that feeling and get the fuck out. <laughs> Wise words. <laughs> That's all I got. Okay, now we are going to dive into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by people of color or about people of color or any true crime goodies. Um, 
once again, I got nothing this week. <laughs> <laughs> you had a rough week. It's okay. I had a rough week. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> so my shout out is a 2002 movie called Rabbit Proof Fence. Huh. It's an Australian film. I watched it back in the day. Uh-huh. Um, it's based on a book called Follow the Rabbit Proof Fence by Doris Pilkington Garamara. Okay. The film illustrates the official child removal policy in Australia between approximately 1905 to 1967. Mm-hmm. The victims now referred to as the Stolen Generations. Set in the 30s, based on the true story of Doris's mother, Molly, as well as two other girls who escaped from the Moore River native settlement north of Perth, Australia, to return to their Aboriginal families at Jigalong, while being pursued by white law enforcement authorities and an Aboriginal tracker. Mm, cool. So that's the description from the from the movie. Okay. And uh, yeah, I, I watch. I remember watching it back in the day when it came out. Probably sometime after it came out. You know, I rented it on Blockbuster. Yeah, I rented it from <laughs> Blockbuster, and I just remember uh, just being shocked. How come? I had no idea this was going on in Australia oh, mm. during that time. Yeah. Yeah. It's and happened it, in other parts of the world, too. I think yes. Chile, Argentina, they just kidnapped a bunch of kids from um, activists and people who were speaking out against oh, wow. the government. Um, wow. And uh, yeah, I don't know That's how terrible. governments can get away with this shit. Yeah. Well, it's a really good movie. Um, you know, watch it sometime when when you can cry. <laughs> if you don't feel up to crying, wait, wait on it. Stay away. Okay, <laughs> yeah. got it. Got it. All right. Will do. Um, and then I also wanted to just um, I know we're this is a long episode, but uh, support any shout out to all of the POC um, podcasts out there. Um, we've been included on several lists that are going around. Um, so Scam Goddess, uh, Crime and Color, um, Bro, It's a Murder, um, Wild Black, all those things. Support those. Any businesses you can support, um, any causes you can donate to that are pro BLM, like uh, that's how you can help um, yeah. fight fight white supremacy. So I just wanted to shout out, support black things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the cash app just google fruit loops podcast app or you can become a monthly patron through our podbean patron page this will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting there's no minimum and no commitment even a dollar would help and as always we have merch for sale on our website that's correct and this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every thursday so until next time look alive guys it's crazy out there
We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss Podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go.